You're getting you're getting good at that, man. Your brain must be improving. <laughs> <laughs> you're literally the first person who's ever said that. To me. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Last time on Star Trek: The Next Generation. I am Locutus of Borg. Resistance is futile. Your life, as it has been, is over. From this time forward. You will service us. Mr. Worf. Fire. And now, the conclusion. A Frontier. These are the voyages of the podcast Captain's Slug. It's ongoing mission to explore strange new episodes, to seek out new jokes and new references, to split infinitives that no one has split before. Captain Slog, Stardate, uh, what, whatever, I don't know, what is it, 70, 74, yeah, um, these are the continued voyages of this podcast, I, I'm Eddie, Mark's here as well, and uh, we're going to jump straight into the greatest second part in the history of not just Star Trek, but probably pop culture. I, I'd say that as as second parts go, this was obviously desperately needed, because um, they'd such hype after that first part. But I think it's safe to say that this 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 blew everyone away. This this had ramifications, not only on pop culture in the real world, but but Star Trek in general. There are there are events that happen in this second part that Star Trek will discuss, and fans, you and I are no exception, will discuss absolutely to death, forever. And, and, and from a business perspective, I don't think you can, you can't really say enough what this part two does for the for the for the franchise as a whole. As well as for the fact, I mean, there was all those questions: Will they come back? Won't they come back? Are we ever going to see them again? I mean, let's just jump into yeah. it. Um, uh, so we start with Kirsty Alley, yep. um, commanding what we think is the Enterprise. Yep. Um, uh, Spock's there. Um, uh, as well as um, on the Sulu's helm. there, yeah. yeah um, Sulu's on the helm, um, and Uhura. Uhura is on uh, is on the the deck as well. They've um, received a distress signal from the Kobayashi Maru, which I think we can both agree is one of the greatest additions to the Star Trek lore. One of the single most interesting concepts ever come up with by a human mind, because that's right. If you didn't catch it by now, motherfuckers, we're doing Rafa Khan. It's the, it's the old classic, the old classic rug pull, eh? Didn't see that one coming, did you, James? No, because you sat and watched Beth of Most Worlds, two parts, in one night. Uh, because you very politely messaged us to ask whether we were doing both parts, and we just 
fucking ignored you, to be perfectly honest. Um, <laughs> so now you have to watch Wrath of Khan and Best of All yeah. Part 2 next week. Or, yeah. who knows, maybe we might never get around to it. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I assume we will do Best of Both Worlds Part 2 at some point. We'll see. Um, I, I, I'm, I, I'm tempted next week that we should review the um, episode of South Park, Not Without My Anus. <laughs> uh, Laura watched Ratha Khan with me. And I think she enjoyed it. <laughs> I, did, I, did, I did preface it by saying, oh, this is a good one. And then I've... I, the thing is, we, obviously, Star Trek Four is also fantastic. Uh, but in order yeah. to get to that, we have to get through three. <laughs> and you can't even skip three because it has no. important plot ramifications. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great movie uh, yeah. as well. And also, I, I can say something. It's a great movie to go back to specifically at this point in time because we now know for a fact that Kirk has always known that David is his son. Yeah. Like, that's been established in Strange New Worlds that he knows she's pregnant with his child whilst they are still together. That is information he has. He just chose to essentially be a deadbeat father, knowing that that doesn't really carry any weight in a post-scarcity society. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, cause I, yeah, because that's the... Because I'd, I'd forgotten... Um, because they never—I don't know if they ever mention him in the original series. I don't think they do. I imagine no, I think... that because the the whole thing about the wrath of Khan, and it's kind of easy to tell if you are media literate. But the the wrath of Khan is made by someone who barely gives a fuck about stuff, and it is better for in it a, in a good way. Yeah, oh, oh, all the better for it. I like I was I was sitting there, and it was a it was an establishing shot of the. Um, the the re- regular the, the 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 genesis laboratory uh yeah it's it's the regular i think it's regular spelled in a space way but i think i've written it down as just ordinary it's an ordinary yeah. station yeah doing ordinary shit that's how you keep your super secret <laughs> science projects yeah. quiet <laughs> <laughs> nothing weird here <laughs> all of the accountancy for the uh, federation is done on space station incredibly important for Oh, don't worry about it, lads. Forevermore, people will assume 51 is just a number. <laughs> yeah, so they, uh, so, so they, we had an establishing shot of that, and it was lovely, really slow pan um, over the various blinking lights and that one specific bit of uh, background track that you get in, like, 80s sci-fi. Um, and it just made me think, I fucking love slow sci-fi yes and this this is slow this movie like I, I think this movie's kind of remembered as being fairly action-packed this movie moves at a snail's pace in a great way it's remembered as being action-packed because people are mentally comparing it to star trek the motion picture yeah which was slow to the point of indulgence this is paced perfectly yeah uh, but it's like you say the guy who, who wrote and directed it is Nicholas Meyer mm-hmm. and Nicholas Meyer first of all this is a direct sequel to an episode of Star Trek the original series so you'd figure 
right, okay, it's going to be fairly in canon. No, no, no. Like, Chekhov meets Khan and says, oh, I know who this guy is. He's terrifying. Chekhov is not in the episode that Khan is in originally. Now, if you want to, you can go, oh... He was on the ship, but he didn't work on the helm. That's why we didn't see him. Maybe he ran into Khan in the back. It's something we didn't see. Or maybe, more importantly, Nicholas Meyer didn't care. Yeah. And he knew this was more important. Like, rather than spending twenty, like uh, two days agonising over, oh, well, now I need to rewrite it and put Sulu in this position, Chekhov in, and that doesn't really work. And that, no, no, no. He just went, oh, yeah, fuck it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and he fucking, um, he, he puts that right on Front Street at the very beginning of the movie during the opening credits uh, when we get a a fucking sous-son of the original theme and then immediately it's like nope, we got James Horner <laughs> we've got James Horner to lay down one of the greatest scores in the history of sci-fi uh, you get that little bit of Star Trek maybe a little bit later on and, that, and that's it the, the, now, yeah. it's, now it's James Horner doing submarine movies it's refreshing how little fans, how little fan service there is, because they're not even in the original uniforms. Yeah, I, I, I. By the way, I just absolutely love the this era of Star Trek movie uniforms, where they're all like wearing big coats. That yeah, oh, absolutely. The big, when they go on to regular station, and the big coats with the fur line stuff. Yeah, phenomenal. I, I think they're really, and this really, because I, I, on a on. Ironically, unsarcastic. I love the motion picture. I think the motion picture's amazing. Oh yes, um, so do I. But it's it's not very good Star Trek. It's just a really, really cool, weird, almost kind of avant-garde mainstream sci-fi movie. I know those that's an oxymoron, but that's kind of what it feels like. But I, I think there really is a case for because TV Star Trek's never gonna work on screen, right? Like the ideals of what Star Trek is. No, that's not... Never say never. But uh, if you're wanting to appeal to a mainstream audience, which is not just the people who are watching this on TV, you have to give them something a little bit different. So I am all in favour of the movies being something different. Kind of go sort of soft-ish canon. Don't really worry about it. Like, have a director in who doesn't really know the show that well. Do something weird. My introduction to Star Trek was the J.J. Abrams movie, which is just official fan fiction. <laughs> um, and I love Star Trek, and I fell in love with that film. Yeah. Hard. Yeah, it's a great... That that movie's great. Yeah, and I can't um, wait to get to that one. Yeah, but I, it's, it's, I, the way I, I have always chosen to see it is if you, if you want to get caught up on canon, just tell yourself this. There is a true story of what has happened in Star Trek and we are seeing various directors attempt to tell that story as best they can. Yeah. Now maybe they get some of the details wrong but you know what, if you go watch a movie like, I don't know just because we were chatting about it before recording, The Big Short. The Big Short like the, the char- there are certain characters in that movie who aren't real people who are like combinations of four or five other people but it's what they need to do to tell you a story of a thing that really happened just think of it like that if that's what you have to do to enjoy it or just shut up and no one cares I mean mean, there is there is that sense of um, because I was reading something earlier about the like religion in Star Trek 
And it was just a just a thing on Facebook. I delved into a Facebook comment section because I've deleted Reddit off my phone and I need something to make me angry. Um, <laughs> which is that... Uh, is there religion in Star Trek? Obviously Gene Roddenberry was super against it. But there's still little hints. And like I think Pike talks about being a lapsed Catholic at some point in Discovery or something. And like probably Judaism... You know, not, yeah. not, not to not to fucking get weird, but if Judaism has, let's say, survived a lot, it's probably going to survive <laughs> World War Three and First Contact. Like it's it's resilient. Uh, that that could be taken well out of context, by the way. <laughs> yeah, this is this is something that's going to always struck me as a bit weird in, in Star Trek. And I meant it as a compliment. <laughs> in Star Trek, it's it's aliens get to be religious humans kind of don't which is always weird i mean with the bajorans it makes sense because they've got the only religion that's turned out to be cracked uh, <laughs> so that's 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 its whole thing but like and the 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 the, the klingons worship kalos as a like quasi mythological figure who may or may not have existed sort of thing yeah so yeah, uh, yeah if aliens get to be religious it- my, my my point to that was but you just kind of brought it up there is that yeah you, you it's. It, I think the idea was probably in the writers' room. Let's just not talk about it because if we talk about it, we have to explain it. Because let's not forget, <laughs> we are making a TV show for the autistic community, <laughs> and they yeah. are going to want to know everything. <laughs> we we are we are going to we are going to make a TV show so fucking important uh, and so formative to the autistic community that it's going to make people realise their kids are autistic. Yeah. Yeah. And. And then the movies went, right, okay, well, see what you did there. We're going to avoid talking about religion. Anyway, let's call this Project Genesis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, if, if anybody doesn't know the plot of, of Wrath of Khan, fucking somehow. <laughs> right. Uh, there is an episode of the original series. A lot of it's in the title. Yeah. It's Khan and his wrath. Yeah, Khan's not happy. <laughs> and also, if you've read Moby Dick. There, that's... <laughs> so, there's an original series episode where... Kirk stumbles across a ship with a bunch of people in cryostasis in space. He unfreezes them, and they're led by a charismatic man who, very fortunately for the franchise as a whole, was played by Ricardo Montalban. Yeah. (laughs) He unfreezes them, and they're very nice, they're very friendly, but then he finds out that he's essentially... He is Khan Noonien Singh, who is basically future Hitler. Although, if you're following the exact timeline of Star Trek past Hitler yeah because <laughs> <laughs> they should have happened in 96 but it didn't because of the Romulans messing with the timeline there's a strange new worlds episode about it that clears it all up if you need that yeah yeah and he escaped the eugenics war went up into space hid and that's who they've unfrozen and then Kirk basically traps him on a planet which has bountiful like provisions for people to live on Alpha Seti Seti Alpha f- 5 Mm-hmm. Is where they've been left, and then this movie is years later. They're doing some science stuff, and Chekhov and his captain go to SETI Alpha Six and detect life there. And it turns out that that life is Khan because they got their planets wrong. Right? Okay, I need to discuss this. <laughs> I'm assuming we number the planets from the beginning, like in and out, right? Yeah, from the sun out, surely. Yeah. Yeah, so when they arrived at the, where SETI Alpha 6 should be and SETI Alpha 5 has drifted into this different orbit and SETI Alpha 6 isn't there because according to the plot of the movie, it exploded. Yeah. No further information on that is given. <laughs> <laughs> 
Surely the fact that it was the fifth planet out should have been a giveaway. Did they not fucking check? Ah, see, what I like to think is that um, this is still before Synther Hall uh, was introduced. And so the navigator was really hungover. And when they arrived at what was reportedly set at Alpha 6, he sort of looked around and took a look around and went, well, there's no more planets outside of this. So this is <laughs> therefore got to be the last one. I've had I've had hangover days at work. I've, I've smoked a joint before going in for a shift. It's weird how you knew for a fact that O'Brien's grandfather was the navigator on this. <laughs> <laughs> Aloysius O'Brien. <laughs> yeah. So, and also Kirk's, uh, and also the uh, the other plot, a part of the plot is that Kirk is an old an older man yep. who's thinking of, of of retiring and he needs glasses. And it's about that as much as it's about anything else. Oh, so and also, Kirk's son Merrick Butler Buttrick. Our second time seeing Merrick Buttrick because he was in that one episode of season one of, of TNG. Yes, it's and it's great. It's a fucking great movie. Oh, it's phenomenal. <clears throat> the, uh, the, the that's something that I'd I'd, I'd, I'd like to, to to kind of start on. So this was nineteen eighty two, Ratha Khan, right? Yes, and the idea that that kind of like the genre of film of old action hero starts to feel his age has to kind of come back for one last ride that did that really exist no it certainly would have been in westerns westerns lasted long enough that that would have to come around organically yeah yeah so and also it's the even in the like Western series before like before you start to get old people, the old retired gunslinger being forced out one time is a classic trope. So I can kind of get that, but it is a it is a thing that we do a lot now because of the fucking nostalgia addiction. Yeah, modern culture has gone. But it is a bit. And it's and I'm just gonna say it is a tiny bit silly that the movie in which Kirk thinks he's getting too old to be Kirk anymore is the. Second of the six Star Trek <laughs> movies that he's in, yeah, seven if you count generations. And the mad thing is, like, because obviously as a nostalgia trope now, like, is Indiana Jones too old to come back for Dial of Destiny? Yes, 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 he is, <laughs> and they shouldn't have done it. Um, but it, it also, I don't know if this is a if this is a symptom of us getting old or if they're actually just accelerating. The storytelling. Have you ever seen the third entry in the Olympus Has Fallen series? <laughs> Do you mean the one where his dad turns up and it's Nick Nolte? Uh, I think that happens, yeah. yeah uh, yes. It's called Angel Has Fallen and it's, I think the president gets killed um, and then Gerard, Gerard Butler gets framed for it and then he has to go out and clear his name. But he's like fucking tired. <laughs> 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 and it's and it's a it's a really really in depth exploration of like what that means to be an action hero who's tired and yeah all right Die Hard did that but he was John McClane wasn't tired he just didn't want to be there um, <laughs> and then all right Die Hard four and five can attack with it but Angel has fallen is like a, a really interesting take I I highly recommend it I don't think Die Hard four tackles it I, I think Die Hard four a movie that includes the the line <laughs> you just took down a helicopter with a car. Yeah, I didn't have a gun. <laughs> it's, it's not a movie where you can go, oh yeah, they're really leaning into elderly McLean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but 
I was going to say, uh, like, yeah, it's it's a weird because they 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 have a thing where it's like, what is it? McCoy gives him glasses, yeah, because he's allergic to. I wrote this down. Is it red red vax? Whatever the pill that they have in the future that cures nearsightedness to explain why I imagine why Kirk's going to be the first person we've ever seen with glasses. Yeah, because I imagine that being I can imagine that being the kind of thing that Gene Roddenberry was like super fucking aggressive about when they were making the original series. I could imagine him being like, "You wearing glasses? Take them the fuck off!" Right? Because I know he was against he was against zips as well. He didn't think zips would exist in the future. I have no idea what he's got against zips. There's no, I get it. There's there's an extra in uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part One during the scene where Snape has got everyone in the Great Hall and he's giving them grief about where the fuck is Harry Potter? Who's been hiding the Harry Potter? We know you're all in it. And at one point he walks down and he sort of stops next to a group of sort of older kids. And the one right next to him, right in the frame, is wearing, is got the Hogwarts like cloak and shit on, right? But he's also wearing like very modern, trendy glasses. And it bugs the fuck out of me. Um, <laughs> and it's like, this kid, he must be like the nephew of the director or something. Because anyone in their right mind would have been like, Tell that kid to get his fucking glasses off. There is one little boy with brown hair and glasses in this fucking franchise, and he's known for it. <laughs> Tell this little piece of shit to get. I, if that kid doesn't take his fucking glasses off in a minute, I am gonna, I am gonna kick his fucking teeth in. Uh, that was J.K. Rowling at the side. <laughs> I think he actually identifies no. as a girl, man. I don't fucking care. <laughs> Break his fucking arms! That's exactly why it, it slipped through. Because what you don't know is that in the original filming of that scene, there was a trans kid, and J.K. Rowling was busy throwing them in the skip. Uh, yeah. so that, that's why the little kid with glasses snuck through. Saying, I, I respect you, as she drops them from the seventh <laughs> floor of the Hogwarts Tower. Wear, what you, wear whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will protest for you when I feel like your protests are valid. <laughs> <laughs> We see Kirk's house. I think this is the only time we've ever seen Kirk... I think it's the only time we've ever seen anyone living anywhere that's not on a ship. Got a lot of uh, lot of antique guns and knives on the walls. <laughs> a lot more incel-y than I expected. I, I think that's from a historian's perspective <laughs> yeah. rather than a gun nut's perspective. Yeah. Because, like... like I imagine that, like, looking at a gun for Kirk, for Kirk is a lot like, it's like, well, that's cute. I've handled weapons that can destroy planets. Uh, yeah. For, for fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit like us going, oh, look, encyclopedias from the 1980s. We should get these. Yeah. We, we went to the, to the, there's a thing in Glasgow called the Barras. And explaining the Barras is difficult because it's, um, it's essentially a market where you go and there's obviously lots of market stalls, but it was prim- primarily known in the 1990s and the 2000s is when you would go to buy pirate games and uh, uh, smuggled uh, black market cigarettes. Um, and every now and again, you'd be walking around and you'd be looking at the guy's pile of games and you'd be like, ah, oh, you know what, okay, I'll take a FIFA 2001. Um, I'll take uh, I'll take a Wipeout 2097. And then you would hear like an, a, a shout from the middle distance, and the guy would just reach under the trestle table all the games were on, shut it closed, and then run away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's um, that's how Jason Statham got his start. He was doing that yeah, sort of stuff. That's right, yeah. And somebody 
su- suggested him to Guy Ritchie. <laughs> Have you seen this guy out on the street who's selling fake watches, but who looks like the sexiest supermodel you've ever seen? <laughs> and I was speaking to him, and he used to be an Olympic diver. Like, <laughs> do you think he'd be good for this gangster movie? Uh, yeah, I think he might be all right. Yeah, let's see. Let's see if we can do something with this fucking chode. <laughs> We've got the best looking guy in England out there selling watches, guy. Um, what do you reckon of this kid? Oh, let's give him an audition. I bet he was <laughs> successful at selling watches. He was amazing <laughs> at selling watches, yeah. <laughs> I bet you'd walk away from that with a watch on your wrist and 50 quid missing at your wallet and you wouldn't even know what happened. Do you know um, he nearly died filming one of the Expendables movies? He's in a truck that was driving off a cliff. Right. It was supposed to, something was supposed to happen, but it didn't. And they basically, Jason Statham ended up going off the cliff in the truck. Fuck. And would have died if it wasn't for the fact that he weirdly has the skill set to open the door, turn sideways, and dive out of the truck into the water below. (laughs) Because he's a former Olympic diver. Why not? Yeah. But anyway, Rafa Khan. Right. Uh, What's the book he gets given? Is it... Is it... Is it... It's Dickens. It's Dickens. It? It's, yeah, because yeah. it's the best of times. It's the worst. It's a tale of two cities. And I like that Spock is quite direct with him when he goes, like, he goes, oh, are you telling me that I'm too old? And then later on, Spock just goes, no, you should you should never have become an admiral. You should be the captain of a starship. This is stupid of you, Kirk. Why yeah. are you doing this? This, this one as well, like, because I've been watching a lot of the original series and uh, the three-way relationship between Kirk, Bones and Spock grows a lot more organically, I think, than people remember. Um, Bones doesn't even really come into it uh, for, a, for a while. He sort of pops up here and there, but he's not part of the big three. Um, and I don't think he gets his big name in the credits until, like, season two. This idea, and it is like a kind of background idea, uh, that he and Spock are two sides of Kirk's conscious, conscience. He- yeah, um, it, it really comes to the fore in this movie. I mean, this movie has some top bones in it. Bones is the greatest Star Trek character of all time. <laughs> I I love his when Spock points out that the Genesis Project could be used as a weapon of mass destruction and just lays out what it could do. And then Bones is angry with him for like explaining that, and he goes, well, "I'm not saying we should do that." Yeah, because <laughs> hot hot take, and, and and Laura had this as well. Boiling hot take, because I'm sure you can disprove this with many things from the original series. Leonard McCoy, Leonard Bones McCoy is the wokest guy in Starfleet. <laughs> like, when he's like, oh, it could be could be even a fucking micro, like microorganism on there. We don't have the right to, to kill it. Do you, do you know that he, apparently, originally in his life... Um, the actor, uh, want, uh, DeForest Kelly, wanted to be a doctor, yeah. but didn't have the grades. And then he used to, therefore he kept with great pride all of the letters he got in later life from people going, I became a doctor because of bones. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I wonder, like, especially at the time, as kind of the idea, like medicine was really becoming standardised and obviously big hospitals were opening and there would, there would have been people who were alive when that was kind of less the case. 
I, I wonder if a lot of people thought that medicine was maybe becoming a bit too customer service oriented, that your bedside <laughs> manner had to be amazing. And we're like, well, I'd love to be a doctor, but also I am a giant prick. <laughs> and then Bones got it, and they were like, hold on a fucking minute, we're doing this now? You, you can be a bellend and still be the galaxy's greatest surgeon. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm in for this. <laughs> and obviously half cut most of the time as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why not? No, I, no. I'm not gonna. Dis- I'm not gonna sully bones with that. Bones, bones. It never shows up till work. Till shift hungover. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will defend bones forever. So anyway, everyone ends up because. Uh, so anyway, we start with the Kobayashi Maru, yeah. which, if you don't know, is the it's the unwinnable thing. It's the the no win scenario, and uh, they talk about how. Uh, and, and later on, in the, it's revealed that Kirk is the only person to beat it because he cheats it. Mm-hmm. So he's never faced a no-win scenario, and and that that weighs on him. Yeah. Uh, wh- whereas everybody else sort of says they they've got history doing it, except for Spock, who's never who's never done it because he, uh, I, I think in the prime timeline he also programmed it. Yes. Yeah. And also he wasn't in the command track at the academy. Mm-hmm. He was. Science, yeah, uh, and you don't need to. Even if you're going to promote somebody to captain, if it's captain of a science vessel, you don't really need to prepare him for the no-win scenario. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so the I, I'm going to say this: I absolutely love the little bugs that Khan has that he puts in people's ears that make them highly suggestible. Yeah, but I do have a question about them: if they become highly suggestible, why can't they? Why 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 do they follow only? Khan's orders. Why did they not like turn up and then why can't Kirk just be like, Chekhov, don't do that? And he'll be like, Oh yeah, fair point. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's trained the bugs to be on his side. Oh right, okay. Yeah. Maybe after they killed his wife he gave them a rousing speech. Because let's face it, Ricardo Montalban is delivering this like it's fucking Leo. Yeah, he's enjoying himself yeah. so much. He is having I've- a great time. <laughs> I also would like to say it's very refreshing in Star Trek to have a mind parasite that isn't introduced by an admiral. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. I have a question for you because it's important. Kirk is an admiral in this movie. Yeah. Is Kirk an example of an admiral who isn't mad, or is he an admiral who's mad in a very specific way? Oh. <laughs> Yeah, is it? I mean, are we now starting to see that all Starfleet admirals are just captains who have been promoted against their will? <laughs> I just want to engineer situations in which they will be asked to helm their old ship again. Yeah, I think that might be it. It's like they're all trying to start wars with mind parasites from a thousand light years away, just because oh, maybe they'll get me a ship then. Because in a post-scarcity, post-capitalism society, when your role when your payment for everything is essentially status. And I've made this comparison before, right? Like, like we we don't need capitalism because if we if we did, children wouldn't have interesting answers for what are you gonna be when you grow up. <laughs> because they would just be like, Well, I'm gonna be a doctor because I wanna help people, not because it wants to make me a, a lot of money or whatever. So these are all essentially we boys and we girls. Uh, we people who have grown up into those people who are just like oh this is the greatest play in the universe and now I've been made essentially a hall monitor 
<laughs> this is the worst. Just want to get back yeah. out and shoot lasers again. Uh, yeah, Kirk says at one point, like, being gallivanting around this cosmos is a young man's game. Yeah. And he says it possibly the least believably Chatner delivers a line in the entire era. Deliberately not believable, like, Kirk doesn't believe it specifically. Yeah. It's so, so bollocks. Yeah, because there's, there's a lot in this of, like, oh, these children staffing the Enterprise and all that. Like, oh, come on, Kirk, this is transparent as fuck, man. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, you'll never have a better doctor than Bones. But. So yeah, it's the 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 ship of the uh, the Enterprise is entirely a crew of uh, trainees and some senior officers. Spock's the captain. Scotty's nephew is in engineering because Kirk, as a little test for the engineering crew when he's doing his inspection, slags off the engine the engine room and then has the ensign basically tell him off and tell him he's a fucking idiot and then he talks to Scotty and he's like yes he's my uh, my sister's eldest yeah <laughs> speaking of Scotty uh, when Kirk and uh, Bones and I think te- ch- uh, uh, Sulu and Uhura arrive on the Enterprise there's a lineup and Scotty is there and Bones walks by him and says oh Scotty how's the how's that thing coming along and Scotty kind of gives him a look and then Kirk's like, well, what is it? And he says, says, oh, I I diagnosed Scotty with a bout of... uh," And Scotty goes, sure, leave. (laughs) uh, Did Scotty have an STD? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 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 But I also... I'm going to say this, right? I love the fact that Bones isn't on board the Enterprise. He's, like, visiting sort of just as... as He's just sort of coming along because he's friends with... Got nothing else on... I'm 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 guessing from the way it's set up that Uhura and Chekhov are like and sorry and Sulu are on Kirk's personal staff. Yeah. Or or whatever. So oh. they come over with him. Spock's been promoted to captain whilst they're training everybody up, he's in charge. And Scotty is just still in engineering because you couldn't get that man off the enterprise of a crowbar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what, where else are you going to put them? Yeah, where else is our Starfleet going to go? Who the, the, the Enterprise is the ship most in need of an engineer who is a psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I don't know, maybe if we strapped two warp cores together, threw it at the aliens and blew it up, that would do something. When we left our warp core at that point, yeah, that's a problem for another day, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but do you know what we won't be left with? Aliens. <laughs> I'd say there's certain things in this movie I really love. Uh, I like that um, Chekhov's message to the Genesis station comes through on the on hyper channel radio. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed <laughs> that. Fu- yeah, what what the fuck is that? Why does that <laughs> never get mentioned again? Why did we go with subspace? Hyper channel sounds way better. I mean, I love the I love the the production design. Like I, as I said earlier, like I really love slow sci-fi. But the the sci-fi ship design of the 1980s. I I think is is like such a specific and wonderful retro futuristic time concept because now, and I mean don't get me wrong, like in a hundred years people will be laughing at strange new worlds, like do you know what oh, I mean? Yeah. But we at least now have the wherewithal to be like, okay, what are the advanced technologies we have now, and how do we extrapolate them? into an even more advanced, interesting form. Whereas 70s and 80s sci-fi were just like, how do we take the things that we have now and make them look weird? Like the, 
like the, the the screens on the Nostromo and Alien being just like analog CRT TVs yeah. is so. And I'm and I'm not slagging it by any stretch of the imagination. If anything, that idea is like so imagination expanding, and the the, the production design and this of like the video screens just being like almost like a little monitor with a circular screen with a CRT inside it is yeah is so gorgeous and it's it's so real it's it's so authentic and it feels like I could reach out and touch it. it the thing is, I think is this is the thing. Everything had been switches. So they couldn't, in their head, imagine that we wouldn't have switches in the future. Whereas now we've gone from, we've gone through so many versions of, in our lifetime. We've gone through so many versions of user interface up to the like from like that. Then there was control pads, and there were keyboards, and there were like touch screens and stuff like that. So we can go well. Obviously, in the future, there'll be something else. Yeah. Like in that, like, and that's how you end up with Tom Cruise in Minority Report. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And. Now, like it, you, like stuff like that, you can extrapolate forward. Whereas back then, they were like, "Well, no switches, obviously. What would ever replace the switch? It's the most, and it's like, well, a million and one things could replace the switch. Like, it weirdly, would be more accurate to the futuristic if this site was running off of a, a wired, a wired Xbox pad because they are <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> weirdly useful. Yeah, I got, I got really angry uh, with people during the whole uh, billionaires die in a submersible thing. Um, because they were like the guy was controlling this with a PlayStation controller and it's like yeah because those are <laughs> kind of amazing like there's a there's a reason I mean we've spoken about it on this podcast at Great Life so we won't get too far back into it but there's a reason that con- that, U- that UI controller design hasn't really changed since the 80s because they're amazing at what they do I, my big problems wasn't that it was a PlayStation controller it's that it was a third party one <laughs> and also that it was a wireless one rather than a wired one and it's like why why would why you not just have the plug in one <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah Okay, uh, I also like the fact that the the Genesis project is a civilian project because it yeah. seems like this is one of the few times that somebody who probably doesn't care about Star Trek has had the wherewithal to re- remember the important fact that Starfleet and the Federation are different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, you can be a Federation citizen and do science and your big space station and have it approved by the Federation and not be in the command structure of Starfleet and that's fine and in fact this sort of project shouldn't be in the command structure of Starfleet yeah if we haven't been clear the idea of the Genesis project is to turn any lifeless planet into a planet teeming with life their first test was a lab test and then their second test was going to take place in a lifeless underground Mm -hmm. Uh, so I'm assuming Cockfosters or the Newcastle Metro (laughs) 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 yeah because Bones kind of alludes to it, and 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 Laura brought it up. Where she's like, "Well, well, yeah. I mean, it, it creates habitats useful for life, but only the type of life that we understand." Yeah, it's and it's it, even even if the Genesis device was only used for its actual intended purpose, it, it's it's still kind of dangerous. Yeah, like there, like I mean, how many times and like you know. There's that episode of TNG where they discover, discover the, the silicon-based life forms on the planet that they were mining. Yeah. Yeah, there's literally no way for us to know when if there's life. And there's also a TOS 
episode that has that in it. Yeah. So that, that's something that like Kirk and everyone should be aware of. And only Bones remembers. Yeah. Brings it up. Calls everyone a cunt. <laughs> <laughs> Storms off. Uh, so they basically, Calm wants the device because he's going to be there. Um, so he's going to steal it. But also, whilst he's going to steal it, fucking is 20 steps ahead of Kirk with like his fucking evil plan because he's a because he's a genius and I, I, I this movie has there's a lot of good things in this movie but I think what a lot of people don't talk about is how good the dialogue is yeah to, to, to if you don't know this is the, the early in the movie when Spock is talking about how Kirk should have been a captain rather than an admiral um, he says that Kirk being an admiral is good for him he's progressed his career but it's not best for what's best for like the galaxy the federation the best thing is for him to be on ship and he says and they're talking about him taking over the vessel from Spock Spock's like I don't have an ego to bruise so you can take the ship and he uses the line it's a, uh, it's simple mathematics the needs of the f- of the many out need out outweigh the needs of the few or the one yeah and then that comes up later absolutely great but also it's got the line from uh, Khan when he goes, revenge is a dish best served cold, and it's very cold in space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Ricardo Mantabam, who also we should point out, because I think, I think this is a well-known fact at this point, um, got jacked <laughs> for this film. Because originally they were going to use a muscle suit, and then he was just like, nah, don't worry about it. <laughs> Well, I, I, at no point was it even suggested in there because, like, well, why wouldn't he have, you know, his top done up? <laughs> yeah, because him and Kirk don't fight. I mean, no. so famously, as fam- um, Kirk and and Khan are never in the same room together in this movie um, because they're on opposing ships uh, when they actually fight, and and it's a lot of Khan tricking people into position. But yeah, uh, it's also got. Some of my favourite... So Kirk, in the first bit, managed to take Khan down, essentially, with a ship that's completely fucked. Because they've stolen a Federation vessel. they fucked him over. And he happens to know about the ships and how they work. So he gets the right code to basically turn off the other ship so he can shoot back at it. And he's like, oh, I only beat him because I knew something about ships that he doesn't. So we have to have a moment later on where Kirk is shown to be a fucking genius. Yeah. And the conversation between Kirk and Spock is amazing. Which is Spock's exact line as if we did things by the he's talking about repairing the Enterprise to Kirk. He says, if we did things by the book, hours would seem like uh, day hours would seem like days. Or something like that. And yeah. then says we're six days away from having the Enterprise repaired, two days away from being able to beam you up. And Later on, it's revealed by Kirk that by the book is referring to the fact that if you're being listened into Star Trek regulations, Starfleet regulations are, you should always use coded messages. Yeah. He's told him he's using days to refer to hours, so he's going to pick them up in about two hours' time. <laughs> and everybody else, and then, and then Kirk, for no reason, doesn't share this information with the other people he's trapped with, other than the fact that he wants to look cool yeah. <laughs> in two hours' time. Yeah. Because of course you would. You're, yeah. you're Kirk. You have to. You have to. You have to strategically choose when to start eating that apple, and and when <laughs> and when to allow Savik to ask you about how you beat the Kobayashi Maru, so that it 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 completely tied into your rescue. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
You have, it's, 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 what we, it's what I like to call the rule of second best. <laughs> Where you have to let your girlfriend get beat to an almost pulp uh, by her rival, waiting for her rival to say something uh, that allows you to chime in with the words second best uh, and reveal that you were playing all along. Did you get, did you get that <laughs> reference? <laughs> uh, no, I don't. What's that to? Uh, that's uh, in Buffy. Uh, oh god! When angels pretending to be evil and team up with Faith, and then Faith says something like, "I'm the best actor in Sunnydale," and then Angel whispers from the back, second best." <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile, Buffy has been getting beat up for forty-five minutes. I I I don't remember that one. I I I have a lot of fondness in my heart for uh, Willow's big speech about how she's the most powerful magic user in town and nobody can stop her when she's evil. And then she's about to kill someone, and then just hears. I'd like to test that theory, and, then, and it's uh, and it's Giles yeah. standing there reading from a magic book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, they. they um, I love the fact that they find um, Chekhov and the captain, and they think they're fine, but they've been left there deliberately by Khan, and then they shoot one of the scientists who doesn't matter, um, <laughs> uh, and then Khan, and then and then basically Picard, uh, sorry, Khan. Kirk calls Khan a coward. Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, come down here and shoot me to my face. <laughs> you might as well call him a slag. Yeah. And button up your T-shirt, you fucking poser. Uh, here's a question about the phasers. Surely stun is the default setting on a phaser. <laughs> if nothing else, then for the protection of your kids. <laughs> I, I don't think they should go off stun. I personally think that it should be like you shoot them once for stun, twice to kill them. <laughs> I mean, it should be, it, yeah, it should be once once for stun, twice for vaporize. There should be nothing in between. <laughs> I mean, no, but what if I wanted to do that vaporization where instead of vaporizing them, it slowly burns the skin off and leaves screaming skeleton? <laughs> do you remember, um, do you remember in Stargate SG-1? Uh, when they introduced the the Zat Nicotel, uh which was the sort of handheld snake looking oh, yeah. thing, uh, and the first in the first episode they get it in like season three, I think it's against the the replicators, which are an enemy in Stargate, because Stargate is pro capitalism. Um, <laughs> the uh, Carter says something like, "Okay, so it's, it's one pull for stun, two pulls for kill, three pulls for vaporize." Uh, and then they quickly realise that the vaporising effect is very expensive, so they just forget that. <laughs> vaporise is used entirely so that they can shoot. It, it lets you know from a storyline perspective why security hasn't found the bodies in the facility they're breaking into. Yeah. That's what that's what vaporise exists for. Yep, yep, yep. So you go bang bang, and then they shoot again when someone's on the floor. That's <laughs> out out of shot. Uh, <laughs> Miniature work in this movie is great. Oh, the I don't think okay. Nicholas Myers didn't watch Star Trek. I don't think he watched motion picture. No, I don't think he did either. There, there is a hero shot of the Enterprise which we got in the motion picture, which is again just showing off the miniature, which I'm assuming is the same miniature. It's gotta be right. But I, I can't imagine that I've finished work on Star Trek the motion picture. Take my miniature of the Enterprise back to like where I work which is probably 16 feet long yeah and don't hang it in the fucking lobby to show off to people I <laughs> I would put it in, we don't have a lot of space in this house I would put it in this in this bedroom 
I just I just suspend it from the ceiling just tall enough. That it wouldn't annoy people. I wonder why that wound up. Because on the one hand, I guess like it might be in in one of like the studios or somewhere around Hollywood. But I I genuinely think you could make a strong argument that that model should be in a genuine museum. Yeah, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. I used to work with, occasionally with the prop store, so I've seen a lot of their stuff. And a lot of times what they would have is like one of the lots for their auctions, which is how I worked with them, uh, would be like a part of the Death Star. Like it would be like a panel with a turret on it. And it'd it'd be like 17 grand. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I, I imagine I've told this story before, but the I worked the, the first ever auction that they did in the IMAX in London. Um, and the big ticket item that fucking no one saw coming was the Lilo Dallas multipass, which they had started at something like £500, and I think it went for something like 45k. <laughs> yeah. And even the Corbin Dallas one went for like 600 quid. Multipass is, it's not, it's, uh, how could you not think that yeah. was going to go for loads? It's, <laughs> it's one of the most iconic. I can, the only, the only prop from that movie that I think would sell for more would be if somebody was selling the case with the stones in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because <laughs> the, um, I mean, I'll always remember that day because I was proper, like, struggling creative in London poor. Like, I was, like, full-scale skint. And one of the lots, quite quick up, and I was allowed to bid on things because someone in the company had registered. So if there was anything that we wanted to bid on, even as staff, they would be like, let us know and we'll put our hands up. And uh, there was a leather crew jacket from Batman the movie, from the 1989 (laughs) Batman um, and its starting bid was 70 quid and no one bid on it and I was like I bet that leather jacket alone is worth a couple of hundred bucks and, I, and you know that way I was like oh I could ask my parents for it I could tell them it's a Christmas <laughs> present and then eventually he just went oh okay no one wants this and, and that was it that, that that was like my white whale like I will <laughs> I will find that fucking jacket and I'll pay whatever they want for it because it will help me sleep at night because I remember that every day <laughs> I think about that once once a day. <laughs> it's weird that you call it your white whale because because this movie's got a lot of Moby Dick references. Quite a few, yes. <laughs> I like uh, so I've I've quoted this movie a lot in my life um, because so um, the reason that I have like all of the uh, motor function issues in my brain is that as my brain tumor was dying. It's like spat out this little cyst, right. and the little cyst is what's pressing against my brain. And I always describe that, and I know this is a quote from Moby Dick, but I'm quoting Raph of Khan. <laughs> I always describe that as a "from hell's heart I stab at thee" <laughs> kind of moment. Yeah, but and, and I, I think that might be one of my most quoted movie lines of all time. <laughs> yeah, the Kill, Kill Bill starts with the "Revenge is a dish best served cold." old Klingon proverb and it isn't it's I think it's Russian <laughs> but it sounds yeah it, 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 that's obviously just to tell you that oh Quentin Tarantino must like movies or something <laughs> specifically he likes the Star Trek movies <laughs> yeah he seems to quite enjoy those yeah and yet has never 
and should never direct a Star Trek movie. I don't know, man. I don't know. Because <laughs> Quentin Tarantino once made an episode of CSI. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and he he can do just stuff. Like, he can do it without swearing and things. Uh, yeah, but I don't want that. <laughs> if, if he's going to direct a Star Trek, then it should be called Motherfuckers in Space. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the USS Dead End World Storage. <laughs> what does Admiral Halsey look like? <laughs> <laughs> my, my. This is some tasty gat. Oh. oh, what else? Uh, I love the wee guy waving at the Enterprise. Yeah, as it flies I do. out. Was that in the motion picture as well? <laughs> People just like waving at ships. <laughs> That's a little hello to the autistic community. They're like, you know how you are with trains. Yeah, <laughs> these people are like that with spaceships. This it's is the just same. some guy. This is some guy with a GoPro on his head. Waving at the USS Enterprise as it leaves. Uh, I've got down in my notes that the uh, the finale of this movie uh, involves them penetrating the nebula, which is something Star Lord was thinking about in Guardians Three. Hey. <laughs> uh, there's two. So the transporter in this movie is awesome. Um, the the effect that they've used is really unique because it's yeah. it's 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 still very analog special effects. It's it's visual. Oh, is it visual effects or is it special? I'd say it's visual effects more than it's special effects. And that, that's that's kind of a pointless uh, designation at, at this point. But a lot of the special effects in this, this is at a point where, if if you don't know this, this is this will be mind blowing for you. Um, um, a lot of special effects, like effects that you see on screen in like old science fiction movies, are like fucking hand drawn, yeah, like animation that's put over uh, as you fade out something like that's how stuff was achieved so it's not computer generated effects it's uh, so weirdly more i find that more special <laughs> yeah there, there is there is a, a an interesting fact the the history of visual effects the history of vfx the history of computer generated characters and sequences um is something that people tend to get like they get it wrong but they get it wrong for the right reasons which is simply that the in-depth knowledge of the actual origins of this stuff is so fucking secret and small uh like for example if i if i asked you and just tell me what first comes to mind if i asked you what is famously the first ever fully computer generated character in a movie it's a carpet in uh, aladdin that's the first one that I know. So you're close. The the one that most people go for, the one that's very well known, is the stained glass man from Young Sherlock Holmes. Right. Okay. From like 1989. Uh, but in fact, uh, the first ever f- fully computer generated character is in The Empire Strikes Back. Um, really? It's during one of the scenes of the the snow speeders flying over the the Hoth tundra. Um, there's a tauntaun in the background that's sort of running. It might even be the tauntaun that Luke goes on to find the probe, um, and right. that was fully computer generated. Um, Jesus, yeah, it's but it's so tiny that like it's kind of it's not even worth 
no way. Well, like a lot of the early origins of CGI in movies are like really confused. Like for example, um, the opening of Escape from New York mm-hmm. that was used by the Academy as a reason to not nominate that movie for special effects because it used computers. It didn't use computers. What they did is they built uh, they they built black like all of the buildings out black and they had like just uh, tape uh, neon tape on the side and then the camera went through so that wireframe model was just uh, they just built it and then flew the camera through so yeah but to that point uh, what I was going to mention is that the actual genuine first ever fully computer animated sequence is in Wrath of Khan it's the demonstration of the Genesis device yeah nice Good. Well, that's that's great. This movie's just great. I mean, I don't think we can... Fantastic, yeah. I I mean, we should talk about the ending, I guess. Yeah. Because, so, the ships... There's the battle in the nebula. Khan doesn't think three-dimensionally because he's... I've literally got in my notes... Uh, But to describe Khan, I put Space Hitler. And then I crossed that out and went, No, Earth Hitler. (laughs) <laughs> yeah because he's from Earth not space yeah. but um, yeah so like Kirk manages to like three dimensionally outwit him but whilst this is going on the engine is fucked and it's gonna expl- not explode and kill them but it basically means they don't have enough power to do what they need to do and Spock realises this and Spock in what is one of the most understated moments of fucking badassery Casually gets out of his chair, walks off the bridge, and then at a reasonable pace, heads down to uh, engineering. I imagine he was like, well, if I run, I might trip, so I've got to be careful about this. And he's like, oh, I could survive the radiation a little bit longer than a human, so I'm going to go in there. Bones tries to stop him, and he gives him the nerve pinch, and then does a little touch on the, the head, a bit of Vulcan mind stuff, for reasons that aren't important now but are important in the next movie remember yeah yeah but if if this movie had bombed and we hadn't got anything that scene doesn't matter fine uh and he goes in and he sorts out the engine and gets exposed to a massive dose of radiation and as far as audiences at the time knew died yeah full full dead Uh, fully radiation fucked up Full scale, one hundred percent pan breed. As and we say. every line of dialogue, once Kirk realizes this has happened and sort of runs down to engineering to say goodbye to his friend, every line of dialogue is fucking gold because it's the irrational exchange of uh, what are the needs of the the many out, outweigh the needs of the one or the few. It's also I have he goes I I like, he says he doesn't recognize me. He goes I am as I have always been your friend. I am and forever shall be your friend. Which, interestingly, I, th- I think I might be cross-remembering two facts here. That there is a town in Canada called Vulcan, and they've, em- they've embraced this. Like, they tried to get the premiere of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek to happen there, and unfortunately their, their facilities just-, just went up to it. But when Leonard Nimoy passed away, they commissioned a statue I think of the Vulcan salute, which just said in memory of Leonard Nimoy, he was and forever shall be our friend. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? That's great. I like the fact that in a, uh, I was going to say in this movie you see people speaking Vulcan mm-hmm. the second time, but still before we've got any real proper Klingon. It's the same guy who created the the languages. 
He got he got the job for making Klingon after creating the Vulcan. We released the Vulcan dictionary, but I love the fact that there's a town that was obviously I'm assuming they named Vulcan after the Roman god. Fire. His name, I, yeah, I only vaguely know because it's a plot point in American Gods. Yeah, I, I it, of course you would embrace this. Because they must have got a lot of Star Trek fans food that's good for tourism. But also, there's nothing negative about being attached to this property. (laughs) You never, ever have to worry about future generations thinking that you might be a bit old hat. No. No. People will just go, yeah, that's that's, that's important. Yeah, I, I think we can safely bet that as a franchise, Star Trek is going to be at least non problematic forever. (laughs) <laughs> Even it, it will only ever be as problematic as you can go. Oh well, it's a it's a product of its time. Yeah, exactly. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. It, it's not problematic in the way that like H.P. Lovecraft is when it's like even people at the time were like, "Whoa, mate." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, 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 carrying, uh, I, I love the fact that they carried on a conversation while they were transported. That's something <laughs> yeah. we've never really seen. That's interesting, though. That's fun. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to say this, right? I've watched this movie a lot in my life. I still tear up at Spock's funeral. Me too. And I, 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 I... Right. William Shatner has been badly served by popular culture. Yes, good. I'm glad we're getting onto this. Because this idea that he's some sort of incredible... So, for anyone who doesn't know, Shatner was like a classically trained Shakespearean actor, did everything like that, and got a lot of stick from his peers in the industry for saying yes to anything. Yeah. That was kind of his thing. And that's why he's in like episodes of the old Twilight Zone and stuff like that. And it's why he did Star Trek, because he would say yes to anything. And as a result of being having people look down their nose at him, he's been kind of remembered as being an absurd over-actor. But really, like, he... he there is a degree of like melodrama and overacting in his performance in this movie, but it's entirely earned. Yeah. Like, oh, he's giving the performance of a lifetime. Yeah. He he really makes me because I said this to Laura. It, 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 my favorite thing about Star Trek is usually, as as well as the ideas, is the relationships, and we know for a fact there were people on that bridge who fucking hated him, and yet yeah. the absolutely sell that Captain Kirk is friends with every single one of those crewmates. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know what him and DeForest Kelly's relationship was like, but they feel like best mates. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like 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 famously like Takai. Like they Who buried the date? hatchet now. I think they I think they buried the hatchet fairly recently yeah. ish. But yeah they 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 like he Takai hated him. Like and the thing is as well Shatner as a person is so arrogant that he only found out people hated him when he went to write a book about Star Trek yeah. years after the fact and like and no half of the people did want to talk to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but his performance in this is absolutely solid gold. Like he he there's he lets his he lets the people he's in a scene with perform and breathe. He doesn't step on anyone's toes. The speech he gives at the end well first of all the speech he gives at the funeral is incredible and then 
he has that final conversation with David where he explains that beating the Kobayashi Maru and giving himself and he's like I gave myself a clever pat on the back for being so clever and working out a way around it but it left me completely unprepared to deal with this situation yeah and it's heartbreaking and and it fully sets up that in the next movie Kirk will literally break Federation law to steal a ship which is pretty so it, and and the only reason he does that is to at, at what he thinks at that point is to retrieve his friend's corpse and return it to his home world so he can have the burial like that's that's in, an insane level of of do, of being a good friend yeah it's I, it's he is so good I, in this movie. He's so good throughout all of Star Trek. To be fair, because it it, re- I, it really made me think as well. Like I I love Picard. Like I I'd, I'd yeah. love to serve under Picard. I think Picard's an amazing captain. I think I might be a Kirk guy. I've been having I've been, this thing I've been struggling with recently. Um, I, I say that as if it's like a, as if I'm a man of the cloth. Yeah, no, because <laughs> because no, I I realised this recently. If um. What like who would I rather if I was on board a ship? Who would I rather have as my captain? Right, Picard, one hundred percent respect him. I think you can learn a lot. I think you probably have more fun under Kirk. I think the the captain who is most likely to put his life on the line to make sure no harm comes to you is Pike. Oh, hundred percent. Pike's relationship with his crew is much more congenial like he considers that that group of people his like found family yeah and and of course that definitely ties into the fact that he knows his fate is part of that but yeah i i 100 i would serve under uh, but if i was going to live anywhere in the star trek universe it would be deep space nine because it's got the best bar yeah (laughs) the genesis device goes off at the end of the movie in the nebula the nebula collapses into a planet that's the thing that we do need to mention because that's what we'll be talking about Next time we want to piss everybody off by not doing part two of an episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And Spock gets burial at space. Yeah. Um, and and the and James Doohan... Plays the bagpipes, obviously. Well, he, he holds some bagpipes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he puts them to his lips and he pretends to blow. And then the music of bagpipes is put over it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd be, I, I, I'm going to say this, right? I'd be furious if somebody on board my spaceship brought bagpipes. <laughs> it's, like, it's, an encl- it's an enclosed space. Yeah, I would <laughs> right. specifically set my replicators not to make them. <laughs> Bring like even a guitar's a bit much, lads. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> we don't even know how O'Brien got a cello in here, but are you going to be the one to tell him? Does he? If you've got a cello. Do you does he bring that with him, or does he have to use the industrial style replicators they've got down in engineering to knock out a cello? I bet he built it himself. <laughs> I bet he carved it himself from a bigger cello. There is a uh, plot in um, Babylon Five. There's one of the characters on the space station is restoring a motorcycle. All right. So they keep having to buy parts and have them shipped from Earth. <laughs> Which is just a great thing. And then I think they end up putting an incredibly futuristic engine in it. So it goes at about 300 miles an hour. <laughs> and the, and, the, and the, there's like a ventilation shaft running down the middle of the ship that is the only place you could possibly ride it. And there's no obstacles. Excellent. <laughs> nice. 
Oh, I, I noticed the Wilhelm scream in this movie at some point. I wrote, wrote that down. I can't remember when. But what do you reckon Spock's solution to the Kobayashi Maru would have been? Do we see that it's this? That's that's my question. Is Because what Spock does in sacrificing himself to save everyone else is... I don't know if the Kobayashi Maru has that as an option. See, the thing about the Kobayashi Maru, right, is that the the losing... The stakes aren't that you are going to lose and die. The stakes are that you are going to start a war. So if, say, Kirk... If, say, Spock did the same thing that the captain at the start of Star Trek 09 did, which is, say... All right, Mr. Savick, you're in charge. Uh, you have the con. I am going to take a shuttle over there with the bits yeah. I need to fix it, and I'm going to go and fix it. The shuttle crossing over into neutral zone still starts the war. Yeah. So I imagine Spock would have. Um... I, I this is going to sound uh, awful. Yeah. I, I think Spock. Spock would let him die. Yeah, would have let him die. Yeah. Rational exchange. The needs of the the many. Yeah outweigh the needs of the one or the few but then yeah because to be fair the Kobayashi Maru it's never explained why the Federation ship is in the neutral zone so yep. that's that's dodgy because the neutral zone in, in Star Trek only exists for people to go into it when they shouldn't be yeah <laughs> and usually run into a Romulan ship that also shouldn't be there so that they both have to go well let's just slowly back away and not have a war they also really <laughs> should be like well if it's the if the idea is it's a neutral zone, then you shouldn't be here either. Yeah. Yeah. So why are the Romulans already there? Yeah. Apart from just being uh, sneaky bastards. <laughs> uh, uh, Wolf is always right about the the Romulans. Um, like, so I, I like that. So Star Trek, the, like the original series, ends with the undiscovered country which is peace with the Klingons and then we explore kind of what that means in um, next gen uh, like that it's a thing and, and more definitely in Deep Space Nine we get a lot of stuff about that and in it's apparently been established by something in Discovery that was an easter egg that after Deep Space Nine Cardassia joined the Federation right um, like actually joined the Federation oh. Um but it's still never actually been confirmed whether or not Bajor eventually do. There, I, I did notice a Cardassian in Starfleet uniform in Lower Decks. There, she's only she's kind of in the background of a shot, so you can't really fully make her out. But it, she does; she has the markings. So the the Easter egg is that uh, Burnham in season three of Discovery, need, in, which is in the future, yeah. needs things that uh, are from three different Federation ships, and one of the Federation ships has a. Cardassian name, so that doesn't imply just it's a free Cardassian joining. It implies that that it's a Cardassian. So yeah, that's what's going on there. Um, but I have never. There has never been in any Star Trek. It has never even been. Pro- I've kind of been proposed a bit that there may be peace with the Romulans. Yeah. And but the the eventual peace with the Romulans is this: the the Romulan homeworld got destroyed. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and the Romulans had no option. Had that melt not happened, the Romulans would have just been a bastards in space forever. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh. But yeah, fucking Rafa Khan, man. So good. So it's, good. 
it's it's the art it's this is it, without Rafikon, you don't get Star Trek movies. That's the thing. Yep. Because this was a hell like this the, saved the, the, the franchise. Motion, yeah, the motion picture was a hell mary, but it was sort of a, it was successful enough to justify its existence. That's Rafa Khan was boom. Yeah, uh, we can make more Star Trek now, and now we're at a point where Star Trek will, has become such a big disparate thing it will never die. Yeah, like like. Prod, like they, it's big enough that they can make projects that fail, and nobody goes, "Oh, I guess we're not making Star Trek anymore." Yeah. Um. So we'll just keep yeah, bringing thanks. it back. Yeah. Yeah. Thank. So thanks for, to Nicholas Myers, who in no way cares about Star Trek. <laughs> in any way, he does this. He does one other movie. He writes the script, I think, for another one. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for all your work. You did something very important that you don't give a fuck about. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you were the man for the jo- yeah, you're the man for the job. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I just wish you hadn't put in a whole fucking thing about everyone thinking they're getting too old and then made fucking four more four movies. movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I um, mean, yeah, five more if you I mean, cuz in generations Kirk's in it obviously. Scotty's in it, I think. Scotty's at the beginning. It's Scotty and Chekhov in it. Yeah. But apparently they wanted everyone to come back. Yeah. And then, like, they were like, "No, that's no. stupid." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Rafa oh, Khan. Oh, oh, one thing I wanted to mention. Right. Ages ago, I read an article about somebody trying to measure outrage on the internet, like outrage clicks and like clickbait and stuff like that. So they needed a unit to measure oh. outrage in, and they named the out uh, the unit they came up with the Millicon. Because they said that a full Khan is Kirk in Grapple Khan yelling Khan, which is the most outraged anyone has ever been. Yeah. <laughs> Genius. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, tune in next week where we might do the second part of Best of Both Worlds. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye. The Captain's Slog is performed by Mark O'Neill and Eddie Edwards. You can follow both of them on Twitter and Instagram. Mark's at RealMarkO'Neill and Eddie is at Ed Edwards Comedy. If you like the podcast, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter and now on YouTube at Captain Slog. And we have a Facebook page as well. Or if you really like what we do here, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Captain Slog. <laughs>